3: This week on Truth and Movies, the MCU goes to the EU in the superhero super-vacation Spider-Man Far From Home. This is
1: Earth, Dimension
3: 616. I'm from Earth 833. Director Ari Aster follows Hereditary with a Scandi folk horror Midsummer. I don't want
1: to acclimate, I want to go.
0: Absolutely
3: not. And in Film Club, Vincent Price is right, in the eyes of God, that is, in the low-budget British horror Witchfinder General.
2: Then your confessions of witchcraft are proven beyond a doubt.
3: All coming up. In Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host's chair, sitting across from the spectacular David Jenkins. Hey, hey. And our friend in the neighbourhood, Adam Woodward. Hello. How are we doing, gentlemen?
4: I'm very good. I had a lovely evening last night, double build, Witchfinder General, and the Women's World Cup semi. Okay. Still trying to work out which was the bigger horror story.
3: Uh, uh, we'll find out later, I guess. Mm-hmm. And David, are you well? Very well, very mm-hmm. well. Excited to talk about the offerings this week. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We have lots of European vacations. Indeed, yes. We should pack our passports. This is like and... America, don't go to Europe. Exactly. Week. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, crack on then. Spider-Man Far From Home is first up. Yes, we return to the Marvel Cinematic Universe now for the 23rd time and the first since Avengers Endgame early this year. After the universe-changing events of that crossover adventure, Peter Parker tries to take a well-earned break, touring around Europe with his school friends, but new challenges, foes and potential allies are never far behind, such as the fishbowl-helmeted new arrival, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, named Mysterio.
2: This is Mr. Beck.
3: Mysterio? You can call me Quentin. But you handled yourself well out there today. Saw what you did with the tower. We could use someone like you on my world. I'm sorry, your world?
2: Uh, Mr. Beck is from Earth. Just not ours.
3: There are multiple realities, Peter. This is Earth, Dimension 616. I'm from Earth 833. We share identical physical constants, level 4 symmetry.
2: I'm sorry, you're saying there's a multiverse? Because I thought that was just theoretical. I mean, that completely changes
0: how we understand the initial singularity. Because <laughs> it's insane.
3: David. You weren't on the episode for Avengers Endgame. Usually it's Hannah Woodhead coming here, giving her thoughts. She's actually gone off to Europe this week, hasn't she? So she's not here Hope to she's okay. give her thoughts. Where are you at with Marvel now? Are you still on board? Still? I was <laughs> grudgingly never quite on board with the
0: whole the whole thing. and But I do like to keep up with it. I mean, I know that the, the MCU people are very, very antsy when it comes to quote-unquote spoilers, mm-hmm. to the level where I, I thought the f- the funniest thing about... Seeing Endgame, which I did in like the real cinema, was that instead of a trailer for this film, there was a, a little kind of in character intro from Tom Holland saying, Hey, Spider Man here, this is sorry, this is pre film. Spider Man here, trailer for my new film is going to be happening, but for spoiler purposes, we're going to be playing it after the film. So you have to mm-hmm. go through a three hour film, wait to see whatever your little closing end credit sting is, and then see the trailer as almost like a kind of double sting. I was long gone by then. <laughs> so, but um, I mean I guess the spoiler thing is is has a very, very swift half-life really mm-hmm, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Because like you can't really talk about this film <laughs> without completely spoiling Endgame in that Spider-Man is in
3: it. To, yes yes to, to the point where this this takes place immediately after Avengers Endgame it's the first film to take on board many of the events of that film exactly and certain character dilemmas and situations are affected by who was still around by the end of that film so i suppose if there is anybody out there who's still biding their time to watch Endgame maybe when it comes to rental or streaming yeah. or something why would you wait that long but we probably have to talk about some of the the paradigm shifts here right?
0: exactly i think there's one key one really about so just to sort of fill you in a bit, Peter Parker is back in school and he's got his little rucksack and he's, he's kind of wide-eyed and sort of dashing around and he's pretending to be Marty McFly and he's in love with, with Zendaya's MJ but and he's got this whole plan to... Uh, he sort of set up this little kind of romantic scenario that he hopes to play out while they're on their science tour of Europe and when they arrive in Venice, a big kind of weird water sprite destructive thing happens and you get to see St Mark's Square leveled which is mm. kind of actually really upsetting <laughs> <laughs> considering what's actually happening to uh, Venice at the moment um, and Jay Linhull's Mysterio turns up and saves the day and y- you know you understand that this sort of story is set up that these four elemen- elementals have to be destroyed and only Mysterio and Superman can do it together and they're sort of cropping up at Handy tourist destinations across Europe. So, which kind of neatly align with the science trip plans. And so, yeah, uh, Spider Man has to dash back and forth between his kind of funny schoolmate banter and uh, doing his kind of growing up and rite of passage stuff with his taking on the responsibility of being the next key player in a sort of lineage of sort of superhero, mm-hmm. like big global important superheroes one of which is kind of how do you say this he's otherwise engaged <laughs> and
3: uh, can i even we, say we that we can say the big spoiler here it's in the second trailer of the film that Tony Stark dies at the end yes. of Avengers Endgame. Captain America wow. is just, not just around either. It. Just say it, Michael. So this is <laughs> a... It's its a common recurring theme for Spider-Man that is always looking for a father figure dating all the way back to Dafoe and Defoe um, and Alfred Molina's characters in the Sam Raimi trilogy. And... In Homecoming, the previous film, in the, the MCU version of Spider-Man, he was looking up to Tony Stark, and there's that gap there for him. But there's also mirrored on a world scale that they're looking for a new primary hero, and maybe Mysterio could be that guy. Mm-hmm. But also the, the dilemma there is for Peter Parker. He just wants to go on holiday with his mates and say he fancies a girl. He doesn't want to have Nick Fury breathing down his neck trying to topple some big CGI He's, ghost, he's ghosting Nick Fury mm-hmm. to be able to like, you know, do those rite-of-passage things. Mm-hmm. Adam... Did you like Homecoming? Are you on board with, with uh, Tom Holland as Peter Parker and that, Spider-Man? Absolutely, yeah. I, I liked Homecoming quite a bit. I think Tom Holland has really
4: rejuvenated not only this character, mm-hmm. who obviously had been played out by a couple of actors in, in recent times, and over a course of one trilogy and one intended trilogy, that never got quite got over the line And this one. I mean, he's been in four, I think this is his mm-hmm. fourth or fifth film in which he's appeared as Spider-Man. Yeah within the space of a couple of years it must be said i'm amazed that i wasn't actually more fatigued by the character mm. and the, and the whole setup i think the only thing i'd say about this film is that i like all the euro jolly dashing around pretending to be marty mcfly stuff i like the central kind of teen dilemma of of wanting to tell the girl that you that you have a crush on how you really feel and and just kind of leading a normal teenage life that's always been this this central this inherent complex and internal conflict within peter parker but i just feel like with Everything that he's done and seen and been through in the last couple of Marvel films, Infinity War and Endgame, it feels hard to kind of get back to basics and get back to that more frivolous teenage mm. kicks side of things. And he literally finishes Endgame with his mentor dying in his arms. And there's a sadness in this one. There's a poignancy to the opening few scenes where he's, you know, they introduce the fact that he's now got to continue and can he step up and be the next Iron Man? But yeah, I, d- I don't know. I feel like this film maybe lacks a bit of ambition in where it wants to take the character and it feels a little bit hamstrung by having to come out so soon after Endgame and deal mm-hmm. with some of the fallout of that and also trying to progress Peter Parker and Spider-Man as a character. And I don't think it really does either of those things particularly convincingly. Mm-hmm. This idea as well that Peter Parker is basically like the cleverest person in the room. There's like a scene with Nick Fury and, and Jake Gyllenhaal's character and in they're introducing, as you heard in the clip earlier, this idea of a multiverse and Peter Parker instantly starts geeking out about this and and everyone sort of looked at him blankly like oh wow you, you know you, you're basically like a super genius and if he's got that potential why is he still in school mm-hmm. you know why why is he pretending it's, to lead true, this that, normal that, life
0: that never actually comes back into the film does it mm-hmm. he's got this that was literally the one moment in the film where he is not kind of slightly dorky out of his depth not knowing what's happening and what he wants to do with his life Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I kind of like the fact that it very much from the opening scene announces that this is going to be funny and light. Yes, we've had to deal with Thanos and genocide and blah, 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 but this one isn't going to be that. And the film opens up on this kind of high school TV announcement of Tony Stark's death done in a kind of iMovie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very well done and it feels really like to see... That kind of weird homemade aesthetic within a Marvel movie for the opening scene, you do expect this very kind of overly scrubbed overly polished style, slightly kind of dead eyed style that Marvel has kind of um, made for itself and, and it kind of cuts through that straight away mm-hmm. you know i th- I think it 's a film that maybe you can pick apart quite a lot of the oh it doesn 't progress the character and it 's not like doing anything particularly new. I kind of like the fact as well that it's not another origin story I and mean, we've got that out of the way and we can actually move on i mean like spider-man the the sort of the sam raimi spider-man 2 was great is great for that very reason mm-hmm. because like the character is established now we can actually have him do something on that level i kind of like this film because it's like well straight away we can just we don't have to explain his powers or anything you can just throw him in the in the deep end and get going with this so
4: it's the thing they've they've had that for a couple of films now and even in Although they have more cameos, he does appear in Infinity War and Endgame, and he has a, you know, has a role to play in those films, and his powers are established, and just feels like. Although I, I agree that you needed to have a palate cleanser and something to lighten the mood after Endgame, and and actually, I frankly find those types of films the more bombastic and self-serious ones are quite tedious and I would I would take this any day over okay. something like Endgame.
0: Did you find that this was very self-consciously a palate cleanser? Can you mm-hmm. can you imagine that the MCU guys have their big kind of wall chart yeah. of of their sort of you know plan for for world domination mm-hmm. and they've got and they're actually like tagged as like heavy light, mm-hmm. medium light, heavy light.
3: Well, it's, it's almost impossible to watch these films without thinking of those hulking behemoths of studios behind them, and this one being the unique relationship behind Spider-Man, where Sony are making the films primarily with input from Kevin Feige and his minions at Marvel, so... I see the joins here between probably the film that Sony wanted to release as one of their summer movies and then Kevin Feige coming in and saying, oh, just tweak this here. You can put these lines, these characters you can use. He has the wall chart. He knows what's happening in Endgame. He knows what's happening in the other Marvel films that have come out this year or next year. And this is the one where I think that creates this structure that doesn't really hold water for me, particularly once we have the villain, once we have these elementals but it doesn't have to take place in Europe it feels like that's one way of saying okay, we've had Endgame, we've gone, been, gone to space, let's go where can we go after space? Europe yeah. um, that could have easily it's- taken place in New York, which they're still a bit worried about showing too much mm-hmm. in these films. On
4: one level it's quite bold to assess Spider-Man film outside of New York, because mm-hmm. he's so synonymous and, and that place is such a part of the character but yeah, I feel like they didn't really do much with the locations, you have the, the stuff in Venice maybe is quite good initially and then everything after that just kind of blurs into one for me. I think they end up in London at some point, but I
3: yeah. can't really remember. A half-mile radius of London just around Tower Bridge. And yeah, the, Tower. the bit you yeah. see in every, in
4: every Hollywood film. Um, I think in terms of like where this fits in with the wider MCU, so it's supposed to be the, the final film in Phase 3 mm-hmm. of the MCU, which you'll be pleased to hear, phase David. Phase 3. Um, <laughs> Excited but, for Phase 4. But just this idea, I mean, introducing the multiverse, which they don't really explore properly in this film, but that seems to me to be such a kind of they can basically now go in any direction they want from here Mm -hmm. Um, now they've introduced the idea that there's multiple dimensions of of the same characters and the
3: same timelines like could they just bring back Tony Stark could they Price okay. is right. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Let's put some scores on this. I do find it interesting, however, that we have a Spider-Man film so primarily set in Venice whilst also Don't Look Now, the Nick Rogue film, is back in cinemas with a new restoration. So you could almost have a double bill of people it's in red. It's the same film, basically. Yeah, exactly. Going around vaporettos.
0: Instead of a little girl in a red, red mech, it's Tony Stark in a red red armour. <laughs>
3: exactly. David, uh, what scores would you give Far From Home?
0: I would probably give it threes across the board. You know, in it is what it is and I think it plays its formula very well I think one thing I just a very quick thing I wanted to get to I can't really say too much because you know there is a sort of spoiler element in this film but one of the first times I've actually seen or felt that a Marvel movie is kind of almost examining its own DNA and Mm -hmm. what it is and the idea of a spectacle and how you can deploy a spectacle and that will might seem quite weird to say now, but it will become obvious when you actually see yeah. the film. But for me, Mysterio and also the way Jake Gyllenhaal plays him is kind of ambivalent as to what he is really. But it's a kind of like high level threes for me across okay. the board.
4: Adam, I'm going to go sort of low level threes across the board. I don't think it's quite got the the zip and the. Charm that Homecoming did, Mm. but I love this cast, especially Tom Holland, but also having like Marissa Tomei Mm. and even um, Jon Favreau as happy. Zendaya's very good. Zendaya's fantastic. fantastic. She's very, very
0: kind of like feisty. I I wish uh, there
4: was more time for them two to just be together on screen. I hope the next film that they do of this is just they're a couple now and they get to just, I don't know, Mm. have an adventure together. She feels like she's kind of in the background a bit, but she is very good. A lot of the bit players. Jacob uh, Batalon, who plays his his friend Ned as well. Mm -hmm. It's very funny. Uh, So, yeah, I'd say sort of middling
3: to low threes for Mm -hmm. for me for this. I'd have to agree, even though my anticipation would probably be a four, because I, I do love these movies, and I think that Tom Holland is Peter Parker, really. He's one of the best we've had on screen. But it's just lacking in surprises, and Homecoming had that brilliant central performance from Michael Keaton and the sequence where the amazing sequence where they bring together the two plot elements where you're meeting your date's father and he also happens to be your arch-villain and he knows as well. There isn't really a scene to match that in this film, although all the returning cast are fantastic, including Zender here. I think that that MJ and Peter Parker relationship here is just a perfectly matched sort of nervous energy. They're both dorks. After she was something of a distant, cool goth girl in the previous film, their chemistry, their sparking together is fantastic here but I think it's just a a case of a little bit of diminishing returns really and it is because of these competing forces within the film and without the film between Sony and Marvel and between the levels of CGI spectacle or human drama and maybe the future they'll be able to find a way of grounding that. I don't know. We'll see. But that's Spider-Man Far From Home, so we've ticked off Venice, Prague, London. Up next we're going north to Sweden for Midsummer. coming to UK cinemas almost exactly a year after his terrifying debut hereditary Ari Aster's Midsummer is another chilling portrait of grief and unconventional family units it's also the second film this week that involves a european getaway as a group of friends including a couple played by Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner, join their swedish pal for his hometown's annual midsummer festivities welcome and happy midsummer skål what time is it
0: 9pm That can't be right, the sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here.
3: How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. What do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day.
1: Is it scary? What is it? It has special properties. No. What am I going through?
2: We just need to acclimate.
1: I don't want to acclimate. I want to go.
3: Absolutely not. So, Adam, were you terrified by her entering?
4: I wouldn't say I was terrified by it. I'm quite desensitised to a lot of screen horror, having yeah. been exposed to it from quite a young age. So there was. You very, should add that you used to work it, in a video I shop. Did, yeah, than, I did, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. And yeah, and prior to that, I used to rent videos from that shop okay, uh, that yeah, I shouldn't okay. have been able to vid- right. rent at that age. Hereditary—it's it's weird. It's one of those films. I can't believe it's only a year that since that came mm. out because it feels so established now in, in sort of the cultural film cultural landscape. And Ariaster seemingly came out of nowhere. Mm. I, I would actually just, on a side note, implore people to go and check out some of his earlier short films. Yeah, yeah. But certainly wasn't really well known before this. And yeah, Hereditary—I think it was a, a film which didn't quite come together in the end for me, but it's got so many amazing, really strong images in it. Stuff that will that will kind of stay with me, I think, for quite a long time. Obviously held together by this amazing performance from Tony Collette. Mm. I think the most surprising thing for me with Midsummer is he doesn't have a really strong, central performance or doesn't seem to want to build the film around that this Mm. time around. This is much more about the setting and the mood and all this sort of weird stuff happening in the background uh-huh. which a lot of it to be honest felt like window dressing for me he's right. he, he sort of sets up this idea of, a, of it being a film about a breakup and a film about a, a main character Florence Pugh Danny dealing with grief and loss there's a tragic event which has happened in her family um which the film opens with I think that that scene in particular is like, it is very good actually yeah. But it doesn't really feel like he is interested in exploring those themes in a meaningful way, in in a particularly deep or personal way. That is all there on the surface. It's quite easy to kind of pick and grab at that stuff. But from there, it just becomes this cultish folk horror, freak-out movie. The characters, I mean, there basically are no real characters in this film. I mean, they're they're sort of people, you know, playing parts, don't really feel lived in or, Mm. or fleshed out to any real degree. Um, I think Florence Pugh, especially, she's so fantastic and is so wasted in, in this role. So, yeah, a bit disappointed by this one. Um, mm-hmm. Again, there's some strong images. Uh-huh. I mean, he does a good job with the creepy sound design. There's all this, you know, weird stuff happening. Didn't really come together for me. And he also flagged up, I mean, prior to seeing the film, which I must say I was looking forward to because of Hereditary, but I'd read a piece in IndieWire where Ariasta had talked about 10 films that had inspired this. And I mean, you read through that list, and it's like, a name a name a sort of director working in the, in this genre who hasn't been inspired by these films. But then he flags up some interesting stuff like Albert Brooks's uh, Modern Romance and, really? and, and scenes another from stuff. scenes from a marriage. Right. Bergman. I mean, I think this owes more to things like Hostel than it does something like Scenes from a Marriage and Bergman and and those kind of big Euro art house directors. The one film on that list I think he... I can see the comparison with is uh, Gaspar Noé's Climax. Because, again, this is like a sort of freak-out movie that Mm. maybe falls apart
3: a little bit at the end. It made me think about the sort of cultish movies you you see in more tropical climes, recent examples being Ty West's The Sacraments or The Green Inferno, the Eli Roth film. Perhaps it's not as trashy as those films. Well, they're they're
0: all basically like takes on Cannibal Holocaust, Holocaust, which is the kind of ultimate, you know, Westerners go and exploit this kind of otherness and mysticism from in another country. Mm-hmm. and uh, The exploitation
3: sorry. here being let's go and write our sociological thesis about this. It's uh, interesting this you say that because I, I
0: yeah. think the strongest idea in the film, in the entire film, is a moment where the, they're all students and the, and Jack Rayner's character is kind of looking for an idea for, for a thesis and... One of his friends has one already, and is what you know really wants to do his thesis on this particular tribe. Mm. It's the uh, reason they're there basically. and it's the you know it's it's kind of the reason that they've they've gone along it becomes this m- moment where they where both of them decide they want to write about what's happening now and mm-hmm. you know do their studies on this particular thing that they're involved in and uh there is a sort of tension there about well, you're copying me, how can mm-hmm. we share and that for me was like far more interesting than anything else in this film. Any of these kind of very grandiose and quite empty overtures towards... It's all about emotions. It's all about, you know, it's all its all personal. It's all about breaking up. It's all about the sort of romantic lives of millennials. I mean, I just thought, really? Um, I'll rewind a bit and say for context that I loved Hereditary. Okay. It's a film that I thought worked because... There were some really interesting set pieces in it, which this has as well, but they were really grounded in this kind of... in a family reacting to the things that were happening to them mm-hmm. so well. Like, a bad thing would happen, and then you really felt that the characters had kind of processed that, had had understood it and processed it, or in many cases, didn't process it. They couldn't accept it. They didn't know what was happening. Weird things were happening, and they couldn't, like... They broke down because of it. And in this film... Is like he's forgotten that. And what I found to be a very quite haughty and uh, an over-stylized version of dumb Americans get mm. what's coming to the movie, you know? Like, I've really thought a lot about this film and I've read a lot of writing on it. I just can't find anything that convinces me that this is there is no motivation for any of the actions that any anyone takes. It's like that kind of, why is she going in that barn? Why would you do that? Why would this couple split up? Why would they choose to watch this thing? Or why would they not feel this after this happens? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. every scene provoked that kind of question in me to the point where I could not enjoy it at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is saying more about me and my anxiety, but, like, it was a very high anxiety watch because I was so infuriated by you know, watching pawns being moved around a board into kind of horrific situations, basically, and, and, you know, scenes of kind of humiliation. And you can pretty much throw any horror movie at this and it'll stick. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a classic of the kind of Americans or sort of teens go out and bad stuff happens to them. I rewatched Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a kind of like, just a sort of palate cleanser. And it's so amazing, that film, the little things it does to convince you that these people would do these things, mm. like just the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they interact. It's very, very, very minor details that absolutely convince you that, yes, they would just walk in this house. He's got flares on. He's got sunglasses. <laughs> he's just going to walk in there. Of course he is. Whereas in this film, you, there's none of that. No mm. shading of character. There's no, like these people are flesh pods. They are there for to, to get hacked to pieces and they girls coming to them oh
4: my gosh. I mean as you say there are really no rational decisions made by the characters in this film and it's even more egregious when you consider they're meant to be PhD
0: students on a trip and and the fact that this is supposed to be a, a film that is like not interested in horror but actually mm-hmm. on like human psychology and emotional mm-hmm. dynamics I mean and it's like how can we accept that when you know you're not using real people in your film, you know? this is
4: this is the thing. I I think it's always a bit of a alarm bell for me when a director is talking themselves up or talking their film up beforehand and saying things like, "Oh, this is a film about breakups and exploring human psychology," and won't really just embrace and accept that actually I'm making like a genre film. Mm-hmm. And he, and he said he wants this to be seen as a horror film. Mm-hmm. And Hereditary was more of a kind of family drama, and he was interested in like the minutiae of that. He's too intelligent a filmmaker to not. See the tropes and the and and the sort of cliches that he's he's being tripped up on here a little bit. So I don't really understand how this film has kind of made it through without someone actually pointing out to him like the whole horror conceit of don't go back into the house. That is this played out, but the film thinks it's like way above that, and it's mm-hmm. not. And I think that's the most infuriating thing. If it had embraced that and said like, actually we're going to do something that like Eli Roth would happily sit and watch and nod along to, then. Great, but I, I mean, think
0: this has also been one of the kind of things that people have said about this as a way to almost disarm or spin the material is like, oh, it's a comedy. This, which is the classic, like, mm. you know, comeback for a film that is a little bit weird and tonally mm-hmm. hard to kind of pin down.
3: There that, is more humour in this film as well. It's not like Hereditary, which is quite a claustrophobic tense film. There's some. Yeah. I
4: mean, I think that's the sort of line that film critics say on Twitter to make themselves sound more intelligent than your average cinema goer. I don't really buy into that. There, there's, some, I mean, there's some actual humour and some jokes in here, but it's, not, it's definitely not comedy.
3: I wouldn't say it's comedy, but what scores would you give this, Adam?
4: I think anticipation has got to be high four. I mean, <laughs> really liked Hereditary, was excited to see what he was going to come up with, especially knowing that this was one I think that he'd been initially talking about and working on prior to Hereditary. I think Hereditary was more the kind of passion project of his, and that shows a little bit. So four in anticipation, and then maybe a three moving to a two as the film went on for enjoyment, mm. and definitely a two in retrospect. Right.
0: David? I'm probably going to say a four for anticipation, and then a two for enjoyment, and then a one in retrospect. Wow. We haven't even spoken about the fact that this is a very long film. <laughs> two hours and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to comment on that but <laughs> I'm just going to say one
4: thing that really adds to that runtime actually is he really lets the ritual stuff play out clearly quite interested and infatuated with that stylization and the whole you know the whole aesthetic of these of these ritual performances and yeah some of that does drag on a little bit and there's there's actually one thing I just wanted to flag which I've been thinking about this a lot but there's a there's a character who is part of this rural swedish community who is quite grotesquely Um, disfigured and it sort of hinted at that this child may be the the product of inbreeding in this small um, rural community but couldn't really work out why the character was ever really in the film to me it just feels like it's a yeah it's a a freak show Mm -hmm. shock value Thing to throw in and didn't really sit right with me. He's only in it for like a couple of scenes, and there's not not really any reason for that character to be there. And
3: for a film that's supposedly so intelligent, it does rely so much on how freaky and weird Europeans can be, or Swedish people can be. They're naked and walking around, you know, people who are perhaps maybe heavier set walking around naked. Oh God, isn't that a horrifying? I, image. I totally
0: agree. It's like the, he goes all in on the design, and he, mm. and he's obviously found all this kind of runic art and whatnot, mm. and you know uses. The runic alphabet in, the, in this kind of weird, freaky ways, like films like Kill List would have yeah. done in the past. But there is no interest in exploring it beyond a kind of cosmetic level. You know, it's, it's pure decor yeah. for the film. It's just how can we have a sort of thing in the background that looks cool mm-hmm. and slightly off kilter.
3: It's, it's a four three two from me as well. I think the opening sequence, particularly right up until the title reveal, is just so controlled and tense, and it doesn't really find that control and tension again i don't think unfortunately so anyway that's midsummer which is in cinemas this week as well as spider-man far from home up next we're going to go for film club which this week is Witchfinder General.
2: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
3: nice dress
0: uh it's a it's a t-shirt
2: until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. We have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
3: We're keeping the folk horror vibe going now with Witchfinder General. Vincent Price stars as Matthew Hopkins, a man appointed during the Civil War to hunt out witches across the land. Criticised and released for its gruesome content, the film developed something of a cult following over the years, inspiring the folk horror subgenre that also included The Blood on Satan's Claw and The Wicker Man. But let's hear a clip first.
2: You were all of you confessed idolaters. However, these proceedings shall be carried out through due process of law. What law demands, we shall satisfy. You will each be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Should you then sink, we will know that your confessions are false. If, on the other hand, you are seen to swim or float, then your confessions of witchcraft are proven beyond a doubt in the sight of God, and you will be withdrawn from the water hanged by the neck until you are dead.
3: Oh, Vincent Price there, one of the all-time greatest voices. David, which one general is 51 years old now? Rewatching it today, does it sink or swim?
0: Oh god. I mean, what? Do you mean if it swims <laughs> that it's got to die? No. <laughs> oh god, it's amazing. I, I I hadn't seen it for ages and I've I watched it again this week and I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Because we're doing it as a film club and as a kind of folk horror You know the the sort of lineage of folk horror that Midsummer takes Mm. up. You know, Wicker Man may probably be a more obvious link to Midsummer, but films like this and The Blood and Satan's Claw, and oh god, it's it just packs so much in. I mean, you get like a Vincent Price and his ward, his sort of torture buddy, Mm -hmm. going around East Anglia looking for trouble. Basically, have been told that they can get silver guineas if they uh, dispatch some uh, heretics he's basically an old perv he's straight away looking for the pretty girls and, and <laughs> saying bring them to my room so i can uh, i can interrogate them it's just brilliant and then you have this roundhead kind of roving guard hmm. who who is sort of in the mix as well and he is kind of ingratiating into the story and um turns out that his bride to be is come under matthew hopkin's sightlines and he has to kind of contend with his own work in the midst of the English Civil War to making sure that his bride isn't thrown in a bonfire. So right. um, it's a kind of quite small film in a way mm. in that you only see a couple of instances of, of this thing happening and it all happens on quite a sort of local, small village scale, but it just feels huge. It's like yeah. the, the it kind of erupts into this like nail-biting finale. <laughs> it's like wow, is this going to happen? And and I think Vincent Price as Matthew Hopkins is one of the all-time great movie -hmm. villains.
3: I think it really stands up as well. There are many films from around this period, maybe Hammer films and so on, that look quite cheap now, really, because they were made on the cheap, you know, on a production line. And this was made for a very low budget. It is pretty much just historical reenactors out in the forest. It's like a
4: hundred grand or something, just under that. It looks incredible, doesn't it, Adam? Yeah, Yeah. I love Vincent Price in this so much. I mean, apparently the director, uh, Matthew Reeves, actually wanted, sorry, Michael Reeves, actually wanted Donald Pleasance. For the role, and and famously didn't get on with Vincent Price on set. I can see why he would want someone like Donald Pleasance. But Price, whatever issues he had with Reeves on set, he just sort of makes this role his own. I think and it's mm-hmm. it's it's almost like iconic now. And um, I think what he gets across is just not only the complete lack of empathy that this guy had. And actually, if you read up on the real uh, Matthew Hopkins, that story is just. I mean, there's there's sort of. Snippets here and there that you can find in old, in old kind of scholarly works, and his biography is just insane. I mean, he basically went on this rampage for about fourteen months, killing like hundreds and hundreds of people, mm-hmm. torturing hundreds more, just having his way with, as you say, the the kind of pretty peasant girls in in every village. And but what he does with the character, I think, is is just we heard it in that clip. I think his delivery, every word, is so precise, and he, and he really speaks to the characters like megalomania, I guess, mm. and just how deranged and how obsessed he was with his own ego. And, I mean, the fact he dubs himself the Witchfinder General, which is wonderful, and you actually see that moment in this film. And I love the scene where it seems like they've finally been rumbled and the the Roundhead cavalry man is after them. And instead of fleeing, he's like, oh, no, we need to make that guy our, like, number one target, and they just sort of go after him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is such a kind of ballsy move, but, yeah, it really speaks to how
3: mad this guy was. And that's where the film finds this real sense of dread that builds towards the end where you can be accused of this and there's no way out not only the tests that uh, they come up with where literally if you act like a human being that means you're a witch. If you call out if you're stabbed with a knife or if you bleed or if you try and swim away when you're being drowned you're a witch. But it's just the sense that there's no recourse because of this upturned society during the Civil War, there's just no way out. And it can feel very claustrophobic and really tense towards the end. And Vincent Price is just this stalwart all the way through. He's so strongly uh, in his conviction, so strong in his conviction. Yeah.
0: i tell you one other thing I absolutely loved in this film. It's like 87 minutes, and mm. it's really short, and it's, it's really tight, but it makes time to have... So Marshall, who's the roundhead guard... There's maybe, like, two or three minutes of of film dedicated to him riding a horse across (laughs) fields, set to this kind of, like, Black Beauty-esque music, and it is amazing, and, like, it's so atmospheric, and you're getting a real sense of this, of how isolated the villages are and the urban centres are in, in East Anglia mm-hmm. you think wow why are we spending so long watching this guy just leaping across hedgerows but it's, it's amazing it really like adds to the sort of dread of the film and like this idea of the geography as well of like how far people have come to get to a place and how far they need to get back and mm-hmm. how long someone has got to do a thing before someone else returns and Oh, so yeah, you
4: you almost can't imagine what the world would have been like back then in terms of how disconnected everything was, how mm. long information took to travel. I mean, that is why you can understand how this guy got away with what he did. And I mean, you have these characters throughout history who take advantage of these of these sorts of situations. And yeah, is I mean, as I say, reading up about him
3: is really like chilling. Mm-hmm. I think the film is legitimately chilling as well. There are only maybe four sequences of any real violence, I'd say. But there's one which is where they're lowering a sort of crucified, a strung up witch onto a pyre and it's up close and it's proper hysterical acting from the from the actress involved but then it just punches out to this wide shot where they're actually just l- yeah, yeah. lowering whatever the dummy is but it's just so just straightforward very, yeah, very visceral it's really really shocking and it there. makes me f- it's such a shame that Michael Reeves died the year later and we didn't see more from him that he mm. could have gone on and made more films like this or maybe been chewed up by the, the production line of Tygon films at the time yeah
4: maybe. I mean it's a it's a hell of a legacy isn't mm. it I mean I think he'd done a few films before this which were a bit more like Hammer Horror mm. sort of star films and this one I mean yeah it's it's amazing to think what he could have gone on to do but
3: yeah, was he 25? yeah, yeah.
0: alcohol and barbiturates, barbiturates. Yeah. at that age he was hitting it
3: hard yeah. from a young age. But so, after watching this, would we recommend *The Blood and Satan's Claw* and *The Wicker Man* afterwards? Is that the lineage? For, oh, for I, this I reckon genre? so. I reckon mm. so. And there's,
0: you know, there's probably loads more. I mean, mm. I'm not amazingly well versed in the kind of British folk horror tradition, but like, it's one of those ones where you, you know, you, I think these are maybe considered the three kind of touchstones, and you can kind of find your own
3: way from there almost. Mm. I would recommend following this straight into the 1980s doom metal scene. There is a band, Witchfinder General, who sort of pioneered that sludgy post-Black Sabbath sound. And then there's a great song by the Brummy Act Cathedral called Witchfinder General that has samples from this song. Oh, so wow. you can revisit oh, wow. some of Vincent Price's choicest lines.
4: I think it's interesting as well, looking at the time in which this film was made and released, and obviously you had the height of the kind of counterculture movement happening here in, and in the US, and... I think younger filmmakers interrogating this puritanical past, and in an increasingly like secular society, and, mm. and exploring that history. And I think as, he's as the a, man, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, as I say, his he's character recurs throughout history, and it does feel like a really significant. Maybe it was a sort of subconscious thing at the time, but it doesn't seem like a coincidence that these films suddenly mm. were being
3: made and coming out around that time. Yeah, well. A strong recommendation for Witchfinder General there from the table.
4: And this is one of the films that you included in the new issue right? And exactly. 100
3: greatest British films and,
4: and Ben Wheatley's A Field in England as well. You yeah, You can yeah, sort of yeah. see the That's connection exactly, there yeah. I think.
0: In our issue which is currently available now, Little what Lies issue 81, we have put together a list of 100 exceptional mould breaking British films films that either gave birth to a, their own sub-genre or are just unconventional, structurally, formally, tonally. And this one just felt like the the right film to talk about, you know, the British folk horror tradition that kind of came at the end of the 60s. Mm-hmm. We've got, like, The Terror of Frankenstein in there as the kind of first and, I think, best Hammer film. And this almost, like, when that kind of template transcended itself and moved mm-hmm. into somewhere even more interesting and... It, there is a sort of artistry there mm. that has meant that it's endured mm. through the years.
3: And, of course, we're putting out a special podcast, diving a bit deeper into that top 100 with special guests, aren't we?
0: Yep, yep. We're going to sort of have some people who, within the British film industry, who've written about British film and worked on British film. And we're going to sort of delve into some of our favourites from the top 100. Uh, not Witchfinder General, mm. but other, some other movies. So, yeah, tune in.
3: David, Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. So next week, we have a Jim Jarmusch special. We have his new film, The Dead Don't Die, a sort of zombie comedy all-star cast. And then in Film Club, we're going to revisit his weird Western black and white movie starring Johnny Depp, Dead Man from 1995. And then the other new release is Our Time by Carlos Regadas. David, can you say a line about Our Time? Describe it for the listeners.
0: Oh, he's a really interesting director who, who makes a film every couple of years. He's kind of squirrels himself away in his sort of Mexican farm and then just comes up with something that is really completely disconnected to what everyone else is doing. And like, he's got a film called Silent Lie and Battle in Heaven and his most recent one was called Post Tenebrous Lux, very catchy title that one. And this one is a kind of three-hour epic where he has cast himself as a cuckold. If, okay. if you're if you're uh, familiar with the term, he's in an open relationship with his wife, and his wife goes off with another man, and he is not
3: pleased about that. Right. <laughs> well, tune in next week to see if that is highly regarded by the Little White Lies crew. Or let us know about any other films we're talking about, such as Dead Man, at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com via email, or at the comments page at lwis.com slash podcast. Once more, Adam David, thank you for joining me today. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a Seven Digital Production.
1: catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mmm! Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.